everyone. I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Julia Hart, to our show today. Julia is a self-made businesswoman, designer, best-selling author, and most recently, the star of the Netflix show, My Unorthodox Life. She was raised in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, and at the age of 42, she fled, changed her name, and without any formal education or background in fashion, launched her career as a designer with her namesake shoe collection. Within a week of her escape, Julia founded a shoe brand, and within nine months, she was at Paris Fashion Week. Just a few years later, she was named creative director of La Perla and then became co-owner and CEO of Elite World Group, the global leader in fashion talent management. Most recently, she launched her shapewear business, Plus Body by Julia Hart, which is a vibrant and technically advanced shapewear brand that's designed to be seen. In our episode today, Julie walks through her eight-year journey, leaving the ultra-Orthodox community and shares what it was like to grow up in an environment where your biology was your destiny and women were treated like second-class citizens. Julia reflects on her journey from starting a shoe brand with no background, no connections, no expertise in fashion, to then running a business that was valued over a billion dollars. Julia honestly opens up and shares her biggest learnings and mistakes she's made both personally and professionally throughout her life. We also talk about how she completely rewired her thoughts from growing up where women weren't allowed to have opinions or work and the exact steps she did to get over her limiting beliefs and overcome imposter syndrome. We know this episode is going to leave you so inspired to find your freedom, your purpose, and your voice. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yes. Well, I'm a big fan of you. I've definitely watched your show. And I remember in the beginning, I'm like, ooh, I love this. She's like a badass woman. You've gone through so many setbacks in your life. And I just appreciate how real you are about the journey. And I think this is going to be a good one. I'm going to try to jam-pack as much as I can in an hour because I feel like there's so much for us to talk about. But I'm very happy you wrote your book because if anyone wants to get into the weeds, 100% get Julia's book, Brazen. Um, but we're just going to jump right into it. So Julia, I know many viewers of your Netflix show know that you left an ultra-Orthodox community at 42 to rebuild your life. But in my opinion, this just scratches the surface. You've shared in the past that you grew up in a community where your biology was your destiny, which I just get goosebumps hearing that. But can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Great question. So when I say that your biology defines your destiny, is that if you are born a woman, doesn't matter what your talents, capabilities are, who you are intrinsically as a person, just because you're born a woman, meaning you have the physical manifestations that say, oh, this woman can have babies, that means your only sole purpose in life is to get married, be an obedient, subservient, and silent wife, and have children. That is your purpose in life. For many women, being housewife is wonderful. And I would certainly never denigrate raising children. I think it's the most beautiful job in the world. But for those of us who wanted more, 
who wanted children and not children only, there was no space for that. Because just to give you some fun examples, in the Gemara, the Talmud, which is where all the laws that we follow as we live our life in that world, it says a man who educates his daughter is teaching her prostitution. You know, I say this all the time. It's just so indicative of the world I came from. When male child, from their time they're old enough to speak until the day they die, every morning when they wake up, they say, which means, you know, thank you, God, for giving me life. The third prayer they say is, which means, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Stop. Yes, that is a blessing that my sons said, that my husband said, that every man in my community says, and women we say also, Modani thank you, God, for giving us life. And then we say, thank you, God, for making us the way you want to, meaning we're not men. And then the next time we say, thank you, God, for not making us a slave. So we're not men, we're not slaves, we're somewhere in the middle, right? Not only wasn't I allowed to read secular literature, I wasn't allowed to read religious literature because there's another concept in my world, Nashim Daitan Kalos, which means a woman's mind is light which means she's incapable of grasping deep and esoteric subjects. So you are placed into a box of servitude and pregnancy. And for a man, if you're a man, you're supposed to become a Torah scholar and study with the rabbis and be a great leader. So a woman can only gain excellence and brilliance through a man. She can't be the scholar. She can't be the leader. She can't be the rabbi. She can be the woman behind the greatness, cleaning the floor so that he doesn't have to. You know, it's so interesting to me because obviously I know you now, right? Hearing about just how you used to be in the life you grew up in, again, just to clarify, in the ultra-Orthodox, right, Jewish community. That's very important to clarify because 99.999% of the Jewish world does not live the way I did. I have no issues with Judaism. I'm a very proud Jew. I love being a Jew. Fundamentalism in any religion is bad. That's all. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, what were the earliest memories you had when you felt like a second-class citizen? Because growing up, this is what you're believing. This is part of your religion. You're seeing the normality around it. So when did you realize this doesn't seem right and start questioning this aspect? So that, the beginning and end of my Exodus story is thanks to my daughter, Miriam, because my entire life, there was this dichotomy between who I intrinsically am as a human being. I am not shy. I am very intellectual. I love learning. I love books. I mean, that's how I educated myself. I became a voracious reader. I'm a curious mind. I've invented things. And yet I was taught that all that was bad, meaning the things that in the outside world, a woman would receive accolades for, hard work, entrepreneurship, intellect, curiosity, those were things that got me in trouble. And so my whole life, and I looked around me to your point, and everyone around me seemed happy. All the women I know didn't have an issue with asking their husband for permission, staying silent at the table, getting pregnant every year. And so I thought to myself, okay, something is intrinsically wrong with me that this is not enough. And then my daughter turned around four or five years old. She's incredibly, in addition to being the youngest person in Stanford University history to give a class. She gave a class on augmented reality as a freshman. This is a girl who didn't know what a computer was until she was 13 years old and actually taught herself how to code off of YouTube, literally. And then 
three, five years later, she's teaching a class in Stanford University as a freshman. My daughter, Miriam, is also incredibly sporty. She's won um, Spartan, you know, the Spartan race. Yeah. She's won the San Spartan race twice for all women, not just her age group. And when she was young, four or five years old, she came to my husband and she said, hey, I want to play soccer. I really want to play soccer. And women in my community do not play soccer because you have to wear a skirt, right? You're not allowed to wear pants. So my husband told her exactly that. I'm so sorry, but you can't because you're not allowed to wear pants. And since you're wearing a skirt, a man may walk by the field while you're playing. And when you kick, your skirt may lift up and he may see your knees. And that may cause him to have inappropriate thoughts about you. Therefore, you can't play soccer. Now, let's not talk about what kind of man gets turned on by a five-year-old's knees. Let's just leave that aside for a minute. Regardless, my little five-year-old daughter looks at my husband and says, well, okay, if I'm responsible for his actions and thoughts, is he responsible for mine? And hearing that obvious, logical question from my five-year-old gave me permission because they had convinced me that I was somehow intrinsically flawed, that I wasn't okay with the system. No one could convince me that my five-year-old was flawed because she certainly did not hear those things from me. I never spoke a word. I was literally teaching high school and Judaics in high school when she said that. And so she gave me permission to say, no, it's not me. It's the world I live in. And that's when it started. That's when I started educating myself. That's when I started reading. That's when I started my plan to escape. I never really thought about that. I knew Miriam was crucial in your journey, but to your point, you always felt different. And I know you thought, oh, I, there's something wrong with me, right? Maybe God doesn't love me because I'm questioning things. What's wrong with These, me? Why do I keep yeah. questioning things? Like I used to get called into the rabbi's office all the time. And he would just say, Julia, why can't you just behave? And by behave, it wasn't like I was being promiscuous or having affairs. Behave meant reading things, arguing with rabbis. Like my not behaving was being myself, being vocal and verbal and intelligent and educated. That was my big flaw is I didn't shut up. And yeah, and it's like you have this daughter who's innocent, no one's impacting her mind, question things. So I can see how that's, like you said, the beginning of the end. And I know, you know, the process of you leaving the community and getting a divorce, I know I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but took about eight years. So I'm just curious, why did it take that long? And yeah, I would just be curious because that's surprising probably to anyone who's listening. I wish more people would ask this question. It's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. So what people don't realize is that it's a very slow, gradual journey. You don't wake up from, you know, 35 years of indoctrination and then all of a sudden be like, okay, I'm out and then walk out the door. It doesn't work that way. It took me eight years, eight years to make enough money, eight years to educate myself to read Euripides and Voltaire and Descartes and Spinoza and Cicero and any, and you know, to educate myself about history and philosophy and art and culture, because I had a 18th century education. I was not equipped to handle the 21st century. Very few women leave my community. And those that do, most of them don't survive. They commit suicide, they become drug addicts because we were not equipped to handle the 21st century. I didn't know that it was legal for a woman to live alone until I was in my mid thirties. Because in my community, not a single woman, you go from your father's house to your husband's house. Think Bridgerton minus the fancy clothes, right? Or think, 
A Handmaid's Tale minus all the murder. It took me eight years to number one, educate myself, make enough money that I could support myself and my children. And lastly, again, Miriam is the end of my Exodus story because even after I'd done all that, I was ready to go. I had everything I needed. I was too scared. I was too scared to leave after all this planning and all this working and all of this stuff. When push came to shove, the idea of walking out my door and I knew what it would mean. It would mean my family would stop talking to me. My, my siblings would stop talking to me. Every person that was my friend that I knew that I, everyone, my whole world would close the doors to me. So I knew that once I took the step, there was no going back and it was too frightening. It was, imagine if someone tells you, okay, you may have a good life, you may not, but you have to go to Mars to find out. That's what it felt like. The 21st century felt like Mars. I didn't know a single person. I didn't know how it worked. I'd never been to a club or a bar. I didn't have, you know, what's the thing in, at the end of high school where people dance? Prom. Prom. I didn't have prom. Like, I didn't forget the name. Like, I, these are not, these were not, like, I did not live a 21st century life. And I was just too scared. And so instead, my plan became that the last year that I was there, I decided I was going to commit suicide because I couldn't stay anymore. I hated my life. I hated every second of my life and I was too afraid to leave. And so it seemed like an easier, safer choice to just die. But I knew that I needed to do it in a way that nobody would realize I was committing suicide because just again, go back to Bridgerton if a mother commits suicide, no one's marrying that daughter. And I didn't want to mess up my children's chances at a good match. Because in that world, just like in the 1800s, that's all you got. You have a good match or a bad match, and that's all. It's not like you're getting a career or anything else. Because your whole life is going to be centered around that person. And so I didn't want that stigma to harm my children. So I decided I was going to starve myself to death. So by the time I left my community, I was in my low 70s. Wow. Julia. I was skeletal. Like, I'm not large now, right? You're petite in general. I'm tiny now. Imagine this minus 20 pounds. I was an emaciated ghost. Um, and then, and I probably would have, I was probably two, three months away from dying, I would say. And my daughter Miriam comes home hysterically crying. And she's not a crier. We're not criers in my family. Although I've gotten better at it recently, but... Oh, <laughs> But I think it's really important that I'm not afraid to show emotion and to cry, that I'm strong enough to cry. And I really do believe that. Um, but anyway, she comes home and she's crying hysterically. Why? Because her teacher failed her because she accused her of cheating because a girl couldn't have written such clever answers. And I realized it hit me with like the force of a UPS truck that I'm taking the selfish way out because yeah, it will stop my pain and my suffering but if I don't walk out the door with my children, Miriam will be 43 years old in the same place, feeling the same misery. Because look, this is a kid who, you don't go to Stanford from, from my world at all, right? There's no college. And also you marry a man as a teenager. My daughter is a lesbian. Just imagine how miserable her life would have been. And so the next morning I packed my shit and I walked out the door. So she is the reason she gave me the courage to start the journey and then to actually walk out. 
Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. We don't hear that side of the eight years and the every little step that it took and even you planning it you still of course you were fearful to go you know like you said it's mars and it wasn't until miriam really came home and you wanted to do this for her and i'm curious what was going on through your mind when you left because like you said you knew that your family's going to be upset none of your friends are going to talk to you did you know in your gut that ultimately it would all work out or how are you thinking about that because now your family's wonderful you guys are all close you're on the other side but what did you think at the time as a mom of six, right? Four. Four. But yeah, I did have 10 pregnancies, so you're not far away. <laughs> um, just six miscarriages. The way that I looked at it is if I stayed, they wouldn't have a mom. It was this or death. Those were my options. It was success or death. That's big stakes. Totally. And, you know, one big element of your departure leaving your ultra Orthodox community is this freedom fund. So I'm curious, can you talk more about why this freedom fund is important and how you think this shaped your advice of what you tell women when it comes to making money and their finances? Well, again, to me, you don't have freedom if you are not financially independent. If you have to ask permission, by definition, you're not free. And we're taught to be pleasing and not rock the boat and not be demanding and don't be bossy and don't you know, don't be in your face. And so we sit quietly and we wait for men to tell us what to do. And I realized that if I want to leave, I need my own money. I mean, at the time I was teaching in two high schools. I was making around $60,000 a year in each high school. So it's $120,000. So not wealthy by any, but, but it, a very good, decent salary. I didn't get to use a dollar of it. None of it was mine to use. None of it was mine to touch. If I wanted to buy something, I had to ask permission, even though it was my money that I was earning. So my secret fund was money I was earning that I didn't put into the shared bank account that I had in a separate bank account that no one knew about because that was my freedom money. And to me, that's why, you know, what I did at EWG, I created a system to empower women to become financially independent, that it's in their hands because they're the brand, they're the network, they have the audience. Because in the end, if you don't have financial freedom, you are not free. And I, I would definitely want to talk more about this. But going back to you secretly making money and putting it on the side, it's interesting. I actually did not know you were making money being a teacher, but you didn't have access to it. So you needed something secret. So that, that definitely makes sense. And I know you were selling, I believe, life insurance and you were actually like kicking ass, right? Like I think with cold calling, like tell us a little bit more about that time. 
basically, I convinced MetLife to hire me as an insurance agent. The only problem is I didn't know who to sell to. I didn't know anyone in the outside world, and I couldn't sell anyone in the inside world because then they would know what I was up to. So I had to find a group of people that were very interconnected, and that's what I did. And every week we had this contest. Now, this is pre you know, nowadays you can't do cold calling like we used to do it because you have all these cold calling laws. They probably came around because <laughs> of you, <laughs> you know, but honestly, like we would have these contests every week who could get the most appointments from just pure cold calling. And I won every single week that I was there because that's all I had. All I had was the cold call. And the beauty of believing in what you do and being super driven is that you can't fake it. I was so determined and so, like, I'll never forget this one time I drove to upstate, upstate New York, like close to Albany for a life insurance policy. And I'm sitting in a farm. It's literally at a farmer's table. And he wants to buy $5 million of whole life insurance. That's a lot of money in my pocket, right? And he, we discuss, we talk, I'm there for three hours. And then he says to me, okay, let me think about it and we'll get back to you and you'll come. And I was like, oh no, dude, please don't make me drive all the way back. It's four hours. Let's make a decision right now. And he did, signed on the dotted line. So, you know, I learned a lot about sales then and it has stood me in great stead throughout everything else I've done. So thank you, MetLife. I love you. <laughs> exactly. And there's something about, it's so interesting because all these steps before, and we'll get into your entrepreneurship journey soon, is like setting you up to be the perfect entrepreneur. Like, so I just share that because so many people are like, gosh, I don't have a business, but there's so many elements of your life that you can practice important skill sets because you kind of dropped in and have seen so much success. And what's interesting about your story, you know, you see this early on with even your MetLife days is there wasn't really a plan B. And I think about that a lot. So I don't know I, if I'm saying this correctly, but even now I have my own business. I'm an entrepreneur. You know, sometimes people say it's not always great to have plan A, B, C, D. I think you have to be thoughtful about it, right? You don't want to like put your family or yourself in financial strain without being thoughtful. But what do you think about plan B in your own life? Did you ever have that or? Well, I love that question. Um, and it's a yes and no, meaning on the big things, I don't think you can have a plan B. For example, with the shoe brand, with the big things I've done, the shoe brand, the lingerie, EWG, it was success or death. There was no failure. It wasn't in the equation. I couldn't fail. Failing would have meant I had to go back and I wasn't going back. So I think you're hundred percent right that the fact that there was no fallback plan, that there was no plan B is very beneficial in the sense that it had to work because I wasn't giving myself optionality for failure. So that's where I don't think you should have a plan B. But however, I always have a plan B, C, and D for how I'm going to get to something. So meaning within, now that you've decided this is what I'm doing and this has no plan A, plan B, this is it. You're gonna put your heart, your soul, your body, your thoughts, your dreams, your everything you have into this one thing. But now how you're going to succeed with it, well, that you have to be open-minded. If you try this and it doesn't work, don't shrug your shoulders and say, oh, I tried. Try plan B, try plan C, try plan D. So your core decision, keep to it, but how you get there, be open-minded and flexible and elastic in your thinking because there are many roads to the same destination. 
Oh, that was so powerful, Julia. Like the way you said it is so true as someone who's newly in the startup world. It's so true. Having a no plan B for the broader vision and mission of your life or business or whatever it is, family it could be, but being very flexible in the day-to-day of how you accomplish it and get there, which is super, super powerful. And before we jump into your entrepreneurship journey, I actually have a question kind of going back to, you know, there's no freedom without financial independence. For a woman listening, because we have a broad range of women, you know, many friends who are successful career women who have decided you know, I want to put this on hold and be at home with my kids for this time frame. What are your thoughts around that? Because they're not technically, you know, they're doing all this work at home with their family, which is important, but not essentially making money at this life stage. I mean, to me, the beauty of democracy is the freedom to choose. It shouldn't be my opinion or anyone else's opinion that should determine what a woman wants. The only person who knows what a woman wants is her. I mean, we are guilted every direction we take. If we're stay-at-home moms, we're guilted for not being working moms and showing our daughters that you can have both. If we're working moms, we're guilted with, oh, you didn't come to your daughter's recital, your son's da-da-da-da-da. You know, if you wear shapewear, oh, you are too particular about your body and you care about externals. If you don't wear shapewear, you don't take good care of yourself. It's like, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. At a certain point, you have to just get rid of all that noise and say, I don't really care what people think. This is what I want to do. I want to stay home with my children. I'm going to stay home with my children. And when I'm ready to go back to work, I'm going to go back to work. And so I think it is innately and inherently personal. And look, I was a stay-at-home mom until I was 42 years old and look at me now. So I think anything is possible. It's just you have to decide it and you have to stick to it and you have to choose it. I love that. And one thing I'm so passionate about also is, you know, even if you're not necessarily making income, but being aware as a family and making those decisions with your husband. So knowing what your money situation is, really understanding, because in so many cases, you see the women kind of take a back seat and the men typically are making those conversations, going to their financial meetings. So I always love to bring that up because even if you're not making money, that's still your family unit's money. The the whole mess I'm in now is because I didn't know enough about contracts to know how I've been fooled. So learn contracts, learn your, your rights, study things like that because someone will take advantage of you if you don't. That's just the fact. I appreciate you bringing that up because so many people are like, you know, listen, I want everybody to trust their husband and not, you know, be in a tough situation. But what advice do you have maybe for women who are like, you know, I trust my husband. We're together. Like, I understand. And they're kind of like not wanting to get involved with those money conversations or contract situations because it's it's Mars to them. Right. Listen, even for me and I come from the world of finance. So what would you tell them? I I will tell them go to Mars now immediately because You can love each other. You can be married for the next 50 years, or you may not. Or you know what? If you are married for the next 50 years and the person at, you know, 120 dies, you still don't know what to do. You don't know how to run anything. You don't know where your finances are. You don't know how you've gotten there. You don't know if you're in debt or not. Educate yourself, learn, be involved in that conversation. So God forbid, we cannot know what the future holds. And so prepare. Yeah. And I know at least for business, I'm now taking this another route, but when things are good, no one says anything, right? And it's like, oh, everything's lovely. We're all making money. But when shit hits the fan, 
that's when you need, you know, the contracts in place. And listen, we all learn in, in our own way. Even for me, I worked in a family business before I went off and did my own thing and nothing bad happened, but I realized, oh, I was 50, 50 partners with my dad, but it was just in the ether. Like there was no contract. Yeah. And so I learned from my experience, okay, like let's just always make sure, but you know, it's, it's tough. And so much of business is not holding yourself back from doing things that you don't know and you kind of learn along the way. So, you know, hopefully by sharing stories like yours. I always say my strongest, I would say, attribute that helped me be successful is the fact that I'm not afraid of the unknown. Yeah, totally. I welcome it. I'm excited about it. And I think that's a big deal is that you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So many people, so many women, and I've definitely been there, shy away from that, right? And every successful woman, including yourself, who've been on my podcast, that is a theme. So how do you, you know, when you talk to your daughters, when you talk to women you mentor, what advice do you give them about really taking that leap and being okay in that uncomfortableness? Because anything amazing is going to come from that space. Correct. So I would say two things that I tell my children and people who ask me for advice all the time. Part one is, if you think you know everything, you're the walking dead. Your mind is a muscle like any other muscle. If you are not exercising it, if you think you cannot learn anymore because you know it all, your brain is atrophy. To me, it's not zombies that are the walking dead. It's people who stop learning and growing and changing. And the person I am today is not the person I want to be three weeks from now. And certainly not the person I want to be three years from now. I want to keep on evolving and becoming a better person and learning new skills. So I think part one is that life is in the unknown, right? Uh, when my son Shlomo was deciding whether he's going to be stay religious or not, his biggest question that he had for me, and this was so powerful, he said to me, yeah, but in our world, we have all the answers. In your world, we don't have any of the answers. We don't know what happens after life. We don't know what happens with the, you know, this thing or bad or good or punishment or reward. And he said, how can you live in a life where you don't know the answers? And I said, Shlomo, when you know all the answers, you stop asking the questions. My biggest strength was that I came into fashion not knowing what was done. And so I just went and did what I thought should be done. The same with every industry I've walked into. I haven't had any preconceived notions of normal because nothing in my life is normal. And so that ability to see what can be instead of what is, is everything. It's what, you know, when you were a child, you call it imagination. And somehow when we're adults, we disappear our imagination. Don't. The unknown is where all the beauty is. So don't be afraid of it. Get excited by it. And then the second thing I would say is that if you are in the current zeitgeist, you're not looking ahead. And if you're not looking ahead, you're not bringing something new to the table. And if you're not bringing something new to the table, what's your business about, right? You want to be a successful business. You have to find a missing niche, a little something and go and fill that hole. Well, you can't fill the hole if you don't realize that that hole is fillable. If you don't realize that there are other ways of doing it. And then last one, because this really is important. I think women do feel very insecure about trying new things. When my kids were younger, they wanted me to take them to the zoo. And I am anti-zoos because I don't believe any animal or human or any living creature should be caged for my viewing pleasure. That is not freedom. So I refuse to take them to the zoo. So finally, um, I read about the San Diego Zoo, 
which, you know, they, they recreate the habitats or they're not in cages, they're roaming there and they do all sorts of other things like help extinct species, so forth and so on. So I said, you know what? I will take my children to the San Diego Zoo. So we go there and the way that it works is you're like in a little safari Jeep and you go and you drive around this, this huge, enormous place from habitat to habitat and the guide tells you about the animal. So we get to this enclosure and the guide tells us this African elk can jump higher than any animal in the animal kingdom. Find the fence that keeps this animal in its habitat. We look around to the left, to the right, up, down, no fence, no gate, no barbed wire, nothing. So after we all gave up, he asks us to look at the four corners. There was like four telephone poles on the corners of the habitat. Four giant long telephone poles. And there's nothing underneath that. But joining these four telephone poles was like a half pipe C. So imagine like if you take a pipe and you cut it in half, you have like a C shape, this very elongated half pipe C. So this is what the tour guide told us. He said, the way that this animal gauges how far it has to jump is that it comes to the edge of something. It looks up and it calculates the distance before it's jumped. When this animal comes to the edge of this enclosure and looks up, they see this half pipe C and they think it's a ceiling and they never jump. Forget about jumping. They could walk through. There is no fence. There is no gate. There is no impediment except in their minds. And that's women. We're not taught to deal with failure. Historically, guys ask girls out and they get used to getting no's. They get used to having to deal with rejection. And so it doesn't scare them anymore by the time they're adult men. Women don't like rejection. Someone gets rejected once, they're afraid to try again. And my point is, jump. There is no ceiling. It's here in your mind. And the minute you realize what you're actually capable of, the world is the limit. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I think... You know, even for me, I've been doing this podcast now for three years weekly. It's so important to showcase stories like yours because sometimes we don't even think big enough. So it's like, what is possible by hearing your story? Yeah, like think big. And I think we don't do that enough. And I think we can, all of us, especially if you have a business, you get stuck in the nitty gritty, but the superpower is how do you zoom out and think big, even outside of business, your life, right? What kind of relationship do you want to be in? Where do you want to live? Like, how, do you want to have joy every day? Like, we forget about that. Put it in the universe, manifest it, and then make it happen. I love this. And so let's talk about, you know, your first business, the shoe brand. I love that you said you didn't come in as an expert. You had no experience. You kind of talked about this a little bit, but maybe, you know, what really gave you that confidence to be like, I'm going to go and do this, especially as a first-time entrepreneur? Honestly, I was like, okay, if I can time travel 300 years in the future, a shoe brand, that should be easy. Walking out that door empowered me so to such a degree because I, I knew most women couldn't do it. And I knew most women won't. And those who do, unfortunately, not through any fault of their own, because again, we are not trained to handle the outside world. But when I did it and I was still breathing and alive and I had my children, I was like, wait, if I can do this, I can do anything. And so I went and tried and that was it. And again, the stakes were so high because if I didn't succeed in that shoe brand, I would have had to go home. I didn't want to go home. And what would you say looking at that first business, right? First time entrepreneur, everything's on stake. Like you left your community. What would you say was maybe the hardest part or maybe the biggest learning you had from that venture? 
Well, you would think I learned my lesson from that venture, but I'm going to be honest that I didn't. I thought my lesson that I learned from that venture was I became more careful with who I associated with and more conscious of contracts. But if you look at what happened to me recently, yes, I stopped trusting outside people, but it, I didn't apply it to my personal life. And that has caused, it's basically the same issue. So the lessons I learned, I didn't learn well enough, but believe me, I've learned them now <laughs> for sure. But, you know, I think as women, we're taught to be trusting and especially we trust those we love. I think, you know, as a woman also in my world, everything's done with a handshake. So like contracts aren't really a thing, you know? I had to learn the contracts are the most important thing there is because in the end, you can work hard, you can build something great. If you don't have proof that you own it or that you made it, someone's going to steal it from you. That's what's going to happen inevitably. And I think women take my lesson. It isn't just about outside people or outside business partners that you have to be careful with. It's relatives and friends and spouses. When money comes into it, People do horrendous, terrible things. So protect yourself. Yes. And just be mindful, like we said earlier, like have the right paperwork in place. I mean, even for business, it's a lot to spend a few thousand dollars here and for legal aspects, but it's so important to get it done correctly to make sure everything is good moving forward. So, and I appreciate you being so open about, you know, what you learned there. So after you had your, your shoe brand, you ended up being the creative director at La Perla. So how did that transition kind of end up taking place in your life? Uh, so what ended up happening is it started off as a co-branding between my shoes and La Perla. I made Julia Hart shoes for La Perla. So on the bottom, it said Julia Hart. And on the inside, it said La Perla. Or maybe it was the opposite way around. On the bottom, it said La Perla. On the inside, it said Julia Hart. I don't remember anymore. But it wasn't, I didn't start off as an employee. I started off as a co-branding effort. And that went so well that it went from Julia, can you design shoes? To Julia, can you design handbags? To Julia, can you design everything? That's amazing. That's a great transition. And it goes back to thinking big because you allow these opportunities to kind of come to you, which I think is amazing. So, you know, I know we briefly chatted about your divorce and kind of the legal battle, and you've been very open about the biggest learnings that you had there. But for people who aren't listening, you know, you were the co-CEO of Elite World Group. You've done... I was the only CEO. He was never the CEO. I was not the co-CEO. I was the one and only CEO from 2019 to 2022. And in those two years, through COVID, without any outside investment, I took a $70 million business. And in September 2021, we were valued at $1 billion by Jeffrey's Bank. And I was not co-anything. I was the only CEO. Well, no, it's good you said that because that's just, you know, what you see in bios. And I mean, people are literally gifting him my work. I'm like, guys, you can't disappear two years of facts. There was just me. He lived in for most of 2021 and went kite surfing. I mean, I'm sorry. I am not going to let a man take credit for my work. Yes. And and I never really, I mean, no hate to anybody who's listening, who's a co-CEO. I never really understood what that even meant. Like how, so it makes, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. so it makes sense that there's no co-CEO in, in your case, because that's no like, it's no. tough. We did not have my committee. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously fast forwarding today, you know, in hindsight being 2020, there's so many lessons that you've learned, but is there anything else? And it doesn't even have to be about, you know, that co-CEO or, or you having a divorce with your business partner, but any other learnings that you have now in hindsight that you're kind of taking to your next chapter in your life? 
I mean, to me, again, it's really an issue of who I trust. I'm just, I was a very trusting person. And although I learned the lesson of not trusting strangers, I didn't learn the lesson of not trusting loved ones. And I hate to say it, but I am far from the only person this has happened to. You know, it's the amount of stories that have come pouring in over the last year and a half that I've been going through this. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of women sharing such similar stories. Women who built businesses only to get them taken away by a man. So again, to me, the real lesson is trust is earned, not given. Remember that. And stop being afraid of getting in someone's face. Be in your face. Be demanding. Be all those words that people told you are bad for women to be. Vocal, persistent, demanding, strong, be those things. I love what you just said, Julia, because, you know, it's it's tough to be like, don't trust anyone. But you said something that was so powerful is earned trust. I think in a relationship, I think in business, in friendship, earn trust. I love that. So I just wanted to underscore. And also, especially in business, and this is something I'm learning even along the way, is like having those uncomfortable conversations, like you said, right? Like speak up for yourself, be demanding. Like even if it's the smallest thing that's uncomfortable for you to start today, and it could be to your mom, it could be to your neighbor, like that's a good skill. Get in people's face. I hate to say this because the people are going to be oh, she's horrible. Get in people's faces. Learn to stand up for yourself. Think about words that are solely reserved for women. Polite, well-behaved. She's a well-behaved woman. She's so, you know, oh, she's such a good girl. You know, I always say this, when a man is a successful CEO, you call him a leader of industry, a captain of industry, uh, you know, a genius. When a woman is the same thing, you call her a bad ass bitch. Negative connotation, negative connotation, connotation. You don't call a man a bad asshole bastard. You don't. It's reserved for women. When a man is is strong and confident, he's strong and confident. When a woman is strong and confident, she's a bitch and a harpy or, you know, in your face or obnoxious or loud, right? There's certain words reserved for men and certain words reserved for women. And the only way that's going to change is if women say, fuck you, call me whatever you want. This is who I am not going to apologize and I'm going to demand what's coming to me. Oh, I love this. And I'm trying so hard to be that person. Right. And there's nothing like starting a business to put you in those situations, but you know, you were leading and being the main CEO of a hundred million dollar business. And you have, at that point, you have to be that strong leader, right? That, yeah. And like, just to verify, like no woman who's going to be quiet can run a billion dollar business. So you got to go places. You really do. I know you really have to stand up and be demanding. And did you ever question yourself when you were in that role running this billion dollar business and thinking, you know, I might be showing up as too strong. I might be showing up as too demanding. Did you ever have those voices in the back that would talk to you? All day, every day. And there's no world. I mean, I wish I could say that you know, I didn't have imposter syndrome or I didn't feel like, who the fuck do I think I am? It's so inherent in women and especially me because I was literally programmed for 40 something years that I'm inferior, that men know more, that my purpose is to serve and be obedient and good and easy for men to deal with, right? So for me, it was doubly difficult Um, and the only way I made it through is, I know this is going to sound crazy. I spoke out loud to myself every day, every morning I would go to the bathroom. I would literally give myself a 15 minute pep talk of whatever it was that day that I was trying to accomplish. 
I would say to myself, Julia, you're going to do this and then you're going to do that and you're going to be fine and you're not going to feel this way and you know that you're going to do a good job of it. And then at the end of the day, I would sit there and I would count my accomplishments and kind of take a reckoning of what I had done. It sounds so silly, but you got to celebrate the small victories because it empowers you for the next one. So yes, you're going to have that inner voice in your head. Use your outer voice to silence it. And I asked that question because I think so many people look at you and they're like, oh, she doesn't deal with all these limiting beliefs that I have, but you still showed up with it. And like you said, if anything, for 40 years of your life, you grew up thinking you're inferior and that's how it should be. So you have so much more beliefs that you have to get over. But I love that you would give yourself a pep talk and you would say it out loud and then recognize all the accomplishments you did on a daily basis, because I think that's what builds your confidence. You're like, oh, okay, I did it. Let me do a little bit more the next day. Even if it's a little something, even if you wrote something or you wrote an email that you're particularly proud of, or you negotiated a contract, whatever it is, think of something that you did that day that makes you feel good. Focus on it. Remember how it feels when you do it. And then you just want to recreate that feeling. How did you know to do that? Like that is powerful stuff. <laughs> Sounds simple. It's the only way to survive. I had no one else to talk to. I had no friends. I didn't, no one from my old world talked to me. I didn't have friends in my new world. I just had me. So I had no one else to talk to but myself. <laughs> and it worked. And so that's why I know it does work. You know, mine was necessity, not meaning invention, meaning I did it because I had no other choice, but it, I think it's something that works for everybody. Absolutely. We've heard that a lot, but that's, that's really cool. I've never heard you talk about that in other interviews, but talking about, you know, just having limiting beliefs, there's, this is something that we all are still working on, right? Is there anything that is still kind of not, I don't like to, the word holding you back, but it's a belief that you're still kind of working through. Yes. Absolutely. I'm very proud of myself at far, how far I've come this year and a half, but I, I still know that I have a ways to go. And, and that is, I know this is going to sound crazy, but saying no to men without adding, I'm sorry. I have started counting the times in my day where I say the words, I'm sorry. And there are hundreds of them. I am constantly apologizing. I am done apologizing done. So now I catch myself before I apologize. And I say, do you have actually anything that you're sorry about here? No, then don't say I'm sorry. Me too. Even to my team, people who work with me, I'm like, I'm sorry. Can you do this? Or I'm sorry to bother you. But I'm like, why am I so no, sorry? That's what I'm saying. Like, we're, we're so trained to be so polite. I'm sorry that I'm asking you to do your job. Why would you be sorry that you're asking someone to do their job? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Someone made an offensive uh, personal comment, like, about my appearance, something really stupid, like, oh, your dress, your top is too low cut, you're 52, like, you shouldn't be wearing something so low cut. Something stupid about that. And I was about to apologize. I literally was about to say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend. And like, what the fuck? This is what I fought for, to get to choose what I put on my body. And I was covered head to toe until I was 42 years old. So I'm going to wear the lowest cut tops and the miniest mini skirts because to me, it's freedom. And if you don't like it, I'm not going to apologize. Oh my gosh. We should all, everyone who's listening, let's all just catch ourselves and not say I'm sorry because we're saying it way too frequently. But no, I so appreciate you being so open about that. So Julia, I'm, I know, you know, you're working on a ton of stuff. I don't know what you can share with us, but would love to hear, you know, what's getting you excited about kind of all the different projects that you're working on. 
So the one I guess I am most excited about is we're relaunching Plus Body by Julia Hart, the shapewear brand. You know, I started it and then the shit hit the fan of my life. So I paused it and now we're back and I've created the first ever shapewear that is meant to be seen. And I actually have, I, this is what my shapewear looks like. It doesn't look like any shapewear on the planet because we changed the way that color is put into material. So when you stretch it, it doesn't have marks and the pattern doesn't change. But the reason all other shapewear is black, white, and beige is because when you stretch dyed fabric, you get these nasty white lines. And so because compression wear is meant to be stretched, it's always beige, white, and black because the minute you put color or pattern in it, the minute you put on your body, it distorts and it looks terrible. And so we had to change the way that color is put into clothing so that we create shapewear that is so beautiful, you'd never know it's shapewear. We are eradicating the stigma of wearing shapewear because you could wear this as a bodysuit. But guys take, or a woman or a man or anyone else is undressing you and you've got this underneath instead of ugly granny panties, nobody's gonna say boo. And what makes us unique in, in addition to that is we're the first shapewear brand in the world to sell by cup size and not just by clothing size. So you can buy a medium double D you could buy a medium B. And so, because, I, you know, a woman's breasts are part of her shape. And if a compression garment is not bra sized, you're going to get what they call pancake boob, right? It's going to smush you in. Or they, they leave the breast area empty altogether, and then you have to wear a bra and shapewear and four straps and straps in the back. This eradicates that whole concept because the bra is built into the shapewear and it's sold by cup size and dress size. And then the last thing we did is that it's the thinnest shapewear on the planet. It's literally thinner than a piece of paper because if, I mean, I don't know if you've ever worn shapewear, but if anyone has ever worn shapewear, it's thick, it's a thick material. And so when you put it on your body, as much as it's flattening you out, it's also making you wider. Like I've had women tell me they can't button their pants when they wear shapewear. They can't zipper their dress because that extra quarter inch, eighth of an inch on each side makes a difference. Ours is the thinnest shapewear out there. It's so beautiful. You could wear it. I mean, I'll show you a picture of my daughter wearing it as a dress. Like, you just never know. And it's really exciting because basically it's like everything else. It's freeing women from the discomfort or like, you know, the fact that women wear shapewear, $8 billion worth of women wear shapewear, but nobody talks about it. You hide it. And I think the reason for that is because it's so fuck ugly. Well, not anymore. And then our next season, what we're going to do, which is really exciting, is we're going to do shapewear swimwear. It looks like swimwear. It feels like swimwear. It's as thin as swimwear. But imagine boy shorts that are compression, not lightly smoothing or lightly shaping, full-on shapewear that sucks you in, pops up your booty, smooths out your sides. So... That's the beauty of this is that through our way of coloring the garments, which is not typical dyeing, we have created a world in which no matter how far you stretch something, the color and the shape won't. This is Batsheva wearing it as a dress. It just looks like a dress. And then this is me wearing that red bodysuit that I just showed you as a bodysuit under a, a skirt and jacket. You'd never know, but it's shapewear. I'm so excited for you. And where can people find it? What's your website? Where's the website? 
June 22nd, this week, I think it's Thursday. Yeah, we're launching this Thursday. Our, our website goes live this Thursday. So come check it out, Plus Body. And I think you're going to love, any woman who wears shapewear would much rather wear this than something beige, very heavy, that widens you out, that doesn't have your cup size and your breast size, and that looks like granny panties. I'm excited. We'll definitely put those information in our show notes so people can check it out. And I love the fact that it's comfortable because for me, I don't wear shapewear regularly, but I always thought, ugh, I don't want anything that's like uncomfortable already that like feels too tight or anything. So I'm excited. It's to your body. It literally contours to you. So the more times you wear it, you'll see that it becomes more and more comfortable and it's still sucking you in without causing any discomfort. Of course, it has no, it's just, it's the lightest thing out there. It's the prettiest thing out there. How exciting, Julia. I'm I'm super pumped. And I know we're getting here on time. I don't think you can share if there'll be another season on Netflix. So I won't ask you that, but maybe you can share because I love the show so much. Maybe, you know, what were some of the highlights, maybe the most challenging parts of putting your entire life, right? Especially even the hardships that you're going through on television. I mean, it's all, it's all really difficult. You know, it's scary and it's embarrassing and it's uncomfortable. But when I, I made that decision to do it because I thought that my story could help other people write their stories. And if I'm not honest and I don't show the bumps and the bruises and the difficulties, I'm not doing anyone any favors because then they're going to look and say, oh, well, she's perfect and she didn't make any mistakes and she's a this and she's a that. It's not true. I wanted people to see the mess. I wanted people to see the mistakes and the trauma and everything because that's life and you can still do it. Every time I get a message, I have two letters from women who chose not to commit suicide after watching my show. I have over 700,000 messages from women from every corner of the world telling me that they left abusive relationships, that they started businesses, that they left partners or communities. I know whenever it gets really tough and it's really embarrassing, they want to you know, hide under a rock somewhere. I remind myself the reason I'm doing it. And it really, it makes it worthwhile. And you know, Netflix is such an amazing partner. I'm really so grateful to them. They're just so wonderful to work with. And also JGP, my production company, Jeff Jenkins has been become like a brother to me. So I'm very grateful for my team and my people. And I feel protected and loved. And that's an amazing thing. No. I love that. I'm so happy for you, Julia. And I want to end on one last question. You know, people are listening to you and they're feeling super inspired. And they're like, you know what, Julia, I love everything that you've built and I admire you so much. But, you know, I think I'm feeling stuck or maybe it's too late in my life. What would you tell this woman who's listening? Honey, I came to the 21st century as a time traveler at 42. It is never too late. It's never too late. Start at 50, start at 60. Don't let people tell you what you can't do. You know, there's that famous saying, whether you, you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So think you can. So powerful, Julia. Well, I love you so much. I'm so inspired by you. And thank you for just being who you are as a person and showing up as your real self. But such an honor to have you join us today. Thank you, Yasmin. I really enjoyed it. I loved your questions. And thank you for doing this. I think it's so important for women to create this sisterhood and help each other. I think it's wonderful. So thank you so much.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.